The Coram Deo Church Community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you're about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. This morning's scripture reading is Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 26. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. The word of God for the people of God. One of my friends asked me last week, why are you leading liturgy and preaching? Because usually those are two different people in our Sunday gathering. There's a real simple answer. I like leading liturgy, actually, and I just don't get to do it very often. And so when Olivia was sort of building the schedule for this year, I was like, hey, just let me take January. I'll do liturgy in January. And then I realized, oh, it's actually a lot of work to lead liturgy and preach in the same service. This is probably the last time that'll happen, um, but I'm glad I get to do both this month. Um, so that's what I uh, am doing in the month of January. Um, a friend recently sent me an article, in fact, last week, sent me an article with this title, The Strange persistence of guilt. And I was intrigued by the title, and so I began to read the article. It's a long-form piece of journalism, nine or ten pages. The author is a man named Wilfred McClay, who's a historian, has taught at Pepperdine and Tulane and Georgetown, and now at Hillsdale College. And here's sort of what Wilfred McClay is working out in this article. If you think about how um, our cultural dialogue works, the stories we tell about progress, generally the way we talk about our culture sort of sounds like this, that there was a time, you know, back in the uh, pre-enlightenment days when, when people made sense of the world through religion. And so people believed in gods and demons and the supernatural because that's, that's what they needed to make sense of the world. There were a lot of things we just didn't understand. But as science has progressed and as technology has progressed and as human invention and ingenuity has progressed, actually a lot of the things we used to answer through religion, we now know the answers to. 
And so we've sort of moved on from religion. And so there are still people who sort of in a backward and superstitious way hold on to some religious belief. But, but as a people, as a society, as a culture, thankfully, we've moved on from the days of superstition into the days of rationality and science. James K. Smith refers to that kind of narrative as a subtraction story. The idea is, we, you know, we, religion used to matter, but now we sort of subtracted it from the equation. And now we really don't need that as a culture and as a society. Well, what, what Wilfred McClay is asking is, if that's true, and that's the story our culture is telling us, if that's true, if it's true, we sort of moved on from religion, how do we explain the strange persistence of guilt? Like, wouldn't you expect that as we become less religious, as people are less and less inclined to believe that there's a God, wouldn't you also believe that also along with that would decline people's sense of guilt? Like, now that we don't think there is a God and we're not responsible to that God, we'd feel less guilty about ourselves. That would be the sensible thing. And in fact, if you dial the clock back to uh, thinkers like Freud in the early 20th century and Nietzsche in the late 19th century, that's what they predicted would happen. They said, as religion starts to decline, finally people, people will be freed, free, people will be freed from the oppressive burden of guilt, and we'll be able to move on from that. But what McClay acknowledges is that actually we see the exact opposite. He says, guilt has not merely lingered, it has grown. And he's trying as a historian to trace out, why is that? How do we make sense of that? And here's one of the things he points to, that as our agency has grown, our sense of responsibility has also grown. Like as human beings through technology can control more and more of our world, we also feel responsible for more and more of our world. And so we have control over more areas of life than we ever have, but we also feel a deeper sense of responsibility for all kinds of areas that maybe our ancestors just didn't feel as responsible for. Which leads to what McClay calls the infinite extensibility of guilt. He says, there's almost nothing for which you couldn't be held responsible in some way. Let me read you a quote from the article. He writes, I can never diminish my carbon footprint enough or give to the poor enough or support medical research enough. Colonialism, slavery, structural poverty, water pollution, deforestation. There's an endless list of items for which you and I can take the rap. Indeed, when any one of us reflects on the brute fact of our being alive and taking up space on this planet, we may be led to feel guilt about the very fact of our existence. The advance of human civilization brings not happiness, but a mounting tide of guilt. It's a really fascinating article because he's not proposing any solutions. He's just saying, here's a thing I see. Here's a thing that doesn't make sense. The strange persistence of guilt. How can we be free from our guilt once and for all? Is there a way we can finally be released from the burden of guilt and shame? That question is at the heart of this little biblical word, righteousness. We've been spending the last three weeks thinking about this term and this concept and this idea in the Bible. 
righteousness. A word that's used over 500 times in Scripture. And so let me remind you where we've been so far, because this is week three. So let me catch you up a little bit on how we've gotten here. Two weeks ago, we just explored the idea of the righteousness of God. Righteousness as an attribute of God, as something that God is. And we used the image of a plumb line, you may recall. And we said that God is righteous. That is, he is the standard for what is right, what is good, what is true. And therefore, the rest of us measure our lives by the standard of God's righteousness because God's righteousness is the standard. He is always the one who does what is right and asks us to do what is right. And so we said that God's righteousness is both a threat to his people and it's the hope of his people. Last week, then, we looked at God's righteous law. And we acknowledge that because God is righteous, he's also given us rules and laws and commandments because he wants people to be righteous as well, to do what is right and good and honorable. And so he's given his law that expresses his righteousness. And and we noted last week that God's law both expresses his righteousness, but it also exposes our unrighteousness. As we measure our lives by the standard of God's law, we see that we are unrighteous. Now, this morning, we come to what Martin Luther called the central point of the whole Bible. What Leon Morris called the most important paragraph ever written. What Martin Lloyd-Jones called the most wonderful words in all of Scripture. Which creates a little bit of pressure for me, by the way. There's a lot of mediocre sermons you can preach. You don't want to preach a mediocre sermon on the most important paragraph ever written, right? Uh, So on the flip side of that, though, aren't you glad you came to church this morning? Because there's a lot of sermons that you could probably afford to miss. But this one, if this is the most important paragraph ever written, you should probably be here. So I'm glad you're here. Um, And I'm glad we get to tackle this this morning. If you don't usually attend church and you came with a friend this morning, what a great day to come on. You'll understand the most important paragraph in the entire Bible just by being in this room this morning. So win for you, and we'll see if it's a win for me or not, right? Um, I'm really excited to tackle this paragraph in Romans chapter 3, which is, yeah, powerful and wonderful and deeply important. So if you have um, a Bible, in fact, you want to open that Bible underneath your chair if you don't have your own, you'll find it on page 885. We're going to be in Romans chapter 3 in that text that you heard read a few minutes ago. And as you turn there, uh, I would like to just pause and pray again and ask for God's grace as we prepare to look at his word. So Father, we thank you that you have given us your word, and we ask now for the illumination of your Holy Spirit. Would you open our minds to see and understand what you've revealed here? Would you open our hearts to receive it and respond to it in faith? And would you open my mouth to proclaim it and declare it in ways that please you? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so let's begin by just understanding the problem this text is addressing. Actually, the moral problem in the universe. Not just the problem this text is addressing, the problem that needs to be addressed. And the problem is this. If God is righteous, how can he forgive unrighteous people? I mean, you understand 
the dilemma here just from human courtrooms, don't you? If we have a guilty person that we know is guilty and they go before a judge and the judge says, this person is not guilty, that's not justice, right? That's injustice. And in fact, there are examples in our culture where that's happened and we look at that and say, that's wrong and that needs to be remedied. That's the moral problem at the heart of the universe. We want to be forgiven. We want to be released from the strange persistence of guilt. And yet we also need a God who is just and who doesn't look the other way at injustice and evil. So how can we get forgiveness, the thing we most deeply need, in a way that doesn't compromise God's justice? This is a significant moral problem in the universe. And listen, if any of you or any of your friends think, well, God, he just sort of overlooks sin. He should just sort of like give a pass to people. That's something different than forgiveness. Because that's not what it means for you to forgive someone, is it? When you forgive someone, you don't just overlook what they've done. What you're actually doing is canceling the moral debt that they owe you. You're saying this was wrong, and we're calling it wrong. And that's what allows me to forgive you. You're not just ignoring it like it didn't happen. Likewise, God, because God is just, can't just overlook sin. And yet we, because we are sinners, deeply need God's forgiveness and mercy. Understanding what God has done about that problem is what this text is all about, and it's why it's the central text in all the Bible, and probably the central text for your existential life in the world. If you understand what the scriptures are teaching us here about what God has done, then the whole gospel begins to open up and make sense to you. So let's look at it together. Romans chapter 3, I want to begin with verses 19 and 20. And I want you to notice the word law is in here four times. So as I read it again, pay attention to that word law. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is talking about the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments and the rest of the Old Testament moral law that surrounds the Ten Commandments. And notice we learn four things about the law. First, it says, whatever the law says, it speaks. So we learn that the law says something. It tells us something about how God wants us to live. Second, This text speaks of those who are under the law. Think about what it means to be under the jurisdiction of someone or under the authority of someone. God's law has jurisdiction over us. Third, it says, by works of the law, no human being will be justified. So though the law commands us to do things, the doing of those things can't make us righteous. That's the problem the whole Old Testament sets up. God has given this wonderful law, these wonderful commands to human beings that actually do point into the way of flourishing in life. The problem is we can't do them well enough and perfectly enough to become righteous. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law exposes our unrighteousness, like we talked about last week. What 
does the law do? It reveals our sin. It helps us come to know the problem. I'm going to use here an illustration I've used every time I've ever taught on this subject. Here it is. What does that sign make you want to do? What is wrong with you people? Why are you like that? You see a sign that says, please keep off the grass. And there's something in you that says, how come? Why do I got to keep off? I kind of want to put my foot on the grass, right? Like something in you just because there's a prohibition here makes, makes you go, why, why not? Why can't I walk on the grass? Why do I need to keep off the grass? What's so special about this grass, right? You can feel that happening in you. And this is just a dumb sign telling you to stay off someone's grass, Okay. That's an example of what Romans 3.20 is saying. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. As soon as there's a prohibition telling you you can't do something, you feel in you rising up some kind of rebellion that says, how come? Verses 19 and 20 essentially summarize the whole sermon from last week. God's law is good. It expresses the righteousness and moral goodness of God. But it can't make us righteous because it exposes our sin. So that's the summary of the sermon from last week. That's the problem with the goodness of God's law. But the fact that through the law comes knowledge of sin, actually God's law stands over us and stands in judgment upon us because in its light we see our sin and our unrighteousness. Verse 21, but now, but now. Those are the two most exciting words in this text. Don't move too quickly past them. Right? What, what is the word now? It's a time reference, right? It's telling you something has changed. Something has happened. There's, there's come in to the picture a new reality. Something new is in view here. You might realize that your Bible is divided very crassly into Old Testament and New Testament. And if you ask what is new about the New Testament, this is the answer. But now something has happened. The whole Old Testament reminds us of the righteousness of God and the goodness of God's law and the fact that the righteousness of God is both a threat to his people and the hope of his people. But now something new has happened. But now... The righteousness of God, there's our key phrase, has been manifested or revealed or shown forth apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. This is hints of what we've seen the past two weeks. You remember, as we've looked at the Old Testament, we've recognized that Intelligent people in the Old Testament, those who really were humble before God, knew two things. They knew that they were unrighteous, but they also knew that somehow the righteousness of God was their only hope. And so we looked at texts like Psalm 143, where the psalmist says, in your eyes, no one living is righteous. And at the same time says, God, in your righteousness, deliver me. The law and the prophets bear witness. They hint to us that somehow God is going to act in righteousness to deliver his people. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Verse 22, the righteousness of God 
through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So this righteousness of God has come through Jesus Christ. And so that's what the now is speaking of. Speaking of the incarnation, the life, the death, the resurrection, the work of Jesus Christ. And by the way, the word faith in the middle of this word has kind of a dual meaning. And it's pretty interesting because if you think about it, the righteous of God through faith for all who have faith. That's kind of redundant, right? The first reference to faith in the middle of the verse could be translated this way. The righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. Remember what we've been talking about, that God made a promise to Abraham and to his descendants that through Abraham he was going to bless the world. And God throughout the Old Testament is working out that promise how he's going to bring blessing to the world through Abraham and through his descendants. And as we go through the Old Testament story, we see again and again that somehow these descendants of Abraham, these people that are blessed with the law of God and the covenants of God and the commandments of God, fail to live up to those commandments. And therefore, God moves in judgment against them. And we begin hoping for, is there, is there someone? Is there someone who can come and faithfully keep the covenant on our behalf. And that's what verse 22 is telling you, that Jesus Christ has come and in his faithfulness to God, in his faithfulness to the covenant, he has delivered to us, brought, made possible, a righteousness of God that comes through faith for those who believe. So the law revealed the righteousness of God by showing us the kind of morally beautiful life God wants us to live but now something new has happened. The righteousness of God has been manifested or made known apart from the law, and this righteousness comes through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to all who believe. In other words, this is not a righteousness that you achieve through your works. It's a righteousness you receive by faith. End of verse 22. For there is no distinction... For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There, by the way, is just a simple one-verse summary of the problem with the world. Every worldview, every way of thinking about life tries to answer this question. What's, what's the problem with the world? What's the problem that needs to be solved? How could we make the world a better place? And in one verse here, the Bible summarizes what the problem is. The problem is, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our tendency is, as we think about our own moral goodness, or even our social standing in the eyes of others, our tendency is to compare ourselves to other people, right? And to say, well, I mean, I'm not as bad as I could be. I'm not as good as I could be, but I'm not as bad as I could be. So there's some group of people over here that are better than me, but there's also, thankfully, a group of people over here that are worse than me. So I'm kind of in the middle, right? Just kind of balances out. And we tend to compare ourselves to others as our way of sort of justifying ourselves and feeling good about who we are. <laughs> Romans 3 erases all those comparisons and said, look, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is the great leveler. Doesn't matter how you compare to the person sitting next to you. 
Doesn't matter how morally good or upstanding you are compared to your neighbor or the person across the street or the person across the city. The bad news is all have sinned. All have fallen short of God's glory. And that includes you. Doesn't matter who you compare yourself to. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift. Now, the word justified here is the same root word as the word righteous. So when you hear justified, think righteousfied. It's basically what it means. It means to be declared righteous. Think of it, again, in a courtroom is a good analogy. It's a very biblical way of thinking. The gavel is coming down in the courtroom of heaven, and God is declaring that you are not guilty by grace, as a gift. In other words, this this justification, this declaring of you being righteous and in the right, isn't coming because you lived up to a standard or you obeyed God as good as you need to. It's simply coming as a gift by the grace of God. You might call it gift righteousness. The scriptures often, and theologians often contrast works righteousness, which is the way we try to live up to a standard, and gift righteousness or grace righteousness, which is just given to us by faith. Martin Luther, the great reformer, spoke of this as passive righteousness. Because he wants you to understand you don't do something to get it. You are entirely passive, and it's just given to you. Listen to Luther. Just as the earth does not create rain, nor is able by her own strength and labor to get it, but receives it as a mere gift of God from above, so this passive righteousness is given to us by God without our work or deserving. Isn't that great? It's just like the rain falling on the ground. That's what this righteousness is like. You just get it. Just a sheer gift out of the goodness of God. Now, the text goes on to explain how a righteous God can justify unrighteous people by his grace. And there are two key words here. Notice verse 24, are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So there's the first important word, the word redemption. Okay, To redeem means to buy back or to set free or to deliver. The greatest act of redemption in all the Bible in the Old Testament is the Exodus when God sent Moses to Pharaoh and liberated, delivered, set free his people out of bondage and brought them through the Red Sea and into freedom. And the whole scriptures, all the Bible looks back to the Exodus as the great act of redemption and deliverance. And what Romans is telling you is that in Jesus Christ, there's been a new Exodus. We were in bondage held captive to sin and guilt, and Jesus has redeemed us and set us free. We're justified by grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You've been delivered, set free from bondage to sin and death, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. That's the second important word. Notice how the sentence is structured. Whom God put forward as a propitiation. In other words, 
God took the initiative here. This is not God responding to something in you that demanded that he act in grace. Rather, God, out of his sheer grace and goodness, took the initiative, put forward Christ as a propitiation, or some of your translations will say an atoning sacrifice by his blood. Blood, obviously, is metonymy for his death, what Christ did in his death on the cross. Here we're back to the heart of the problem of justice, which is this, that sin and moral evil cannot be overlooked. It must be judged. In his death on the cross, Jesus stands in our place and receives the justice that we deserve. He is treated as guilty so that we can be treated as innocent. And this work is work the Bible describes as atonement or propitiation. It is meeting the demands of justice. It is turning away the wrath of God. And by the way, God's wrath does not mean he's emotionally angry. The wrath of God is just a synonym for his justice. It means his settled opposition to evil. It's not God in an emotionally worked up state, angry about sin. Rather, it's envisioning a God who is the standard of justice and who cannot just overlook sin and pretend that you're okay because you've sinned. And so here's how John Stott describes what Romans is saying here. God's own great love propitiated his own holy wrath through the gift of his own dear son who took our place, bore our sin, and died our death. Thus, God himself gave himself to save us from himself. That is an amazing summary of what it means that God put forward Jesus as a propitiation to be received by faith. That's the amazing good news of the gospel, friends. God himself gave himself to save us from himself. I want you to notice how the action and the initiative is all God's. And by the way, how the whole Trinity is unified in this work of redemption and reconciliation and atonement. Notice that it doesn't say that Jesus died to get us off the hook with God. Like Jesus and God are not working on opposite sides of this scheme. It's not as though God's justice is over here and Jesus is over here and Jesus is getting us off the hook with God. Actually, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is moving towards sinful people, giving himself in their place to fulfill the demands of justice so that he can save, set free, forgive, and redeem those who don't deserve redemption by taking their place. This is at the heart of every good movie you've ever seen and every good book you've ever read. Someone standing in the place of another, taking what they deserve so that they can be set free. Notice how this all connects to God's righteousness now, verse 25. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Notice two times here we're, we're told that God has done this 
to show God's righteousness. As my kids get older, I'm trying to help them, you know, transition into adulthood and take responsibility for basic things. And one of the things that requires in our modern world is building a credit history. Because if you've ever gone and tried to rent an apartment, you might be reminded you have to have some credit history to get a lease on an apartment. And I learned this the hard way when my older son was trying to rent an apartment. was like, hey, they won't rent me an apartment. So I was like, you know what? We need to get ahead of this. And so I was talking to some friends of mine. One of my friends said, hey, one thing my bank told me is you can add your kids to your existing credit card. And as long as their name is on the account, as you use your credit card, it builds their credit history because they're associated with the account. Now, we have one credit card and pay it off every month because Dave Ramsey, okay? <laughs> but... I went ahead and got another credit card this year and I added my, a couple of my kids to these credit accounts so that as we use that credit card, they can build up some credit history and hopefully get to the place where you know, they can sort of do their own things as they grow into adulthood. And uh, what I would notice about this new credit card as the, um, as the statement comes every month, I just realized how weird credit is. You ever thought about this? Like I went to Menards last week and I just handed them a piece of plastic. I did not pay them a single dollar. Nothing was deducted from my bank account. They just charged it, and it ended up on this bill that I get that I'm gonna pay for 30 days from now. So Menards isn't getting paid until 30 days from now. They're just taking it on faith. They're giving me the credit that's gonna say, we'll, we'll sell you this thing now, because you're going to pay for it later. And if you don't, they're going to charge you 28% interest and you'll learn the hard way, right? But think about how a credit card works. It allows you to buy something now that you actually pay for 30 days from now. That's what God was doing with the sins of his people in the Old Testament. He was just letting them build up on the credit card. He was just, they, they weren't, being forgiven, like, have you read the book of Hebrews? It says the blood of bulls and goats does not take away sin. All those sacrifices in the Old Testament, they weren't clearing the debt. They were a foreshadowing of what needed to happen to actually clear the debt. They were preparing God's people to understand that sin requires redemption, atonement, propitiation. But as God's people throughout the Old Testament lived and sinned and came back to him in repentance... Their sins are just building up in the credit account. In his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. He didn't call the bill to be due. He just let it kept building up on the statement. And then he sent the Lord Jesus Christ to pay that debt, to zero out that balance. That's what this text is telling you. And he did that so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, if God is only just, then no sinner will ever be saved. If all we have is the justice of God, we have no hope of redemption. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But if God is only the justifier, if he compromises his justice to forgive sinners who don't deserve forgiveness, then he's not just. The cross, God's gift of his own son, 
is, in John Stott's words, God's righteous way of righteousing the unrighteous. It's God's righteous way of righteousing the unrighteous. See, God has shown his righteousness so that he might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Nobody is getting off the hook for anything in the universe. Everybody is going to pay for their sin or Jesus is paying for it. That's what this text is telling you. God is just. Here's how you can receive forgiveness, righteousness, by faith through Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation in his blood to be received by faith. We said a few weeks ago that God's righteousness is a threat to his people and it's the hope of his people. And now you see why. Because in Jesus, the righteousness of God has been manifested or made known or shown to us apart from the law as God righteously forgives the sin of his people by sending Jesus to stand in their place and then offers us a righteousness that we didn't work for and we didn't earn and we don't deserve. It's a gift because it's the righteousness of Christ himself. Now, how do we get this righteousness of faith? How does it become ours? Notice the text gives the answer three different times. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Verse 25, God put forward as a propitiation to be received by faith. And verse 26, the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We get this righteousness. It becomes ours by faith. And what in the world does that mean? Because is there a messier word in the modern world than faith? What are we even talking about when we talk about faith? Well, John Stott helps us a little bit. Here's what he writes. Faith is the eye that looks to Christ, the hand that receives his free gift, the mouth that drinks the living water. Faith's only function is to receive what grace offers. That's what faith is. It's the hand that reaches out and says, Yes, I will receive what you're offering me in your grace. It's the eye that looks to Christ. It's the mouth that drinks the living water. It's receiving and accepting for myself what God has offered in his son, Jesus Christ. So what should we do this morning in light of this amazing news? In light of the proclamation that there's a righteousness from God that comes to us by faith. Three things we should receive rest, and rejoice. Receive, rest, and rejoice. First, we should receive the righteousness of God by faith. This is the first thing. This is the most important thing. And in my experience, there are many people who are God-fearing, who are church-attending, who would identify as Christians who are actually relying on their own goodness or righteousness. I wonder if that's some of you here this morning. You believe in Jesus, but what you're actually relying on is your own moral effort. That's very common. Happens all the time. We're a very religious country still. There are a lot of people that have a good religious moral upbringing and what they're actually counting on to make them right with God is their own sense of goodness 
their own Midwestern work ethic, their own sense of living up to the kind of person they should be or ought to be. I want to show you the Apostle Paul's own testimony of what it looked like for him to actually receive the righteousness of God by faith. Because I want you this morning to receive the righteousness of God, to not walk out of here trusting in your effort, your work, your moral goodness, your personal improvement plan, but I want you to walk out of here trusting in the righteousness of Christ. Let me show you what this looked like for Paul. Philippians chapter three, flip over there a few pages to the right and it'll be on the screens as well. Here's what Paul says in Philippians chapter three, but whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, trash, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Here's what I want you to notice. Notice his sense of total abandonment. Abandoning all other sources of identity, credibility, good standing, things he would have hoped in and said, here's something great about me. Here's what my resume looks like. Here's what you should know about me if you want to know who I am. He says, I'm throwing all that out. None of it matters in light of the surpassing value of knowing Christ and having a righteousness of faith. Friends, that's what it looks like to receive the righteousness of Christ. Abandoning all other sources of identity, righteousness, hope. And so here's the question, what's, what's gain to you? What's credibility to you? What's good standing to you? What's the business card you hold out at the party? What's the thing you want people to know first when they meet you? Here's who I am. Have you written all that off and said, none of it matters? You know what matters? Christ. Like knowing him and being known by him. Friends, that's what it means to receive and rest in the righteousness of Christ. We should receive the righteousness of God by faith. And I pray that some of you this morning who maybe are still standing in and counting on your own righteousness might receive the righteousness of Christ this morning. Second, we should rest in the righteousness of God by faith. I think many Christians, I don't think, I know many Christians struggle with despair. We know the life we want to live, right? We know the people we'd like to be. We know what God would like of us and demands of us, and we see ourselves falling short of that. And so we get discouraged. We become despairing and disheartened. We see the gap between who we are and who we'd like to be, and it seems like it's getting bigger, not smaller some days, doesn't it? I wonder how many of yourselves, how many of you find yourselves there this morning? Listen again to Martin Luther. He writes, if we have any fear or grief of conscience, it is a sign that this righteousness is hidden and that we are not seeing Christ as we ought. 
But where Christ is truly seen, there is joy in the Lord and peace of conscience. The one who sees Christ by faith says to himself, although I am a sinner and condemned by the law, I do not despair because Christ is both my righteousness and my salvation. I abandon all trust in my own works and I take hold of the forgiveness of sins by grace freely offered in Christ Jesus. That is to say, this passive righteousness. Friends, if you're a despairing Christian, if you're a discouraged Christian, if you're a disheartened Christian, here's what you need to remember. Your standing before God is not dependent on your works. It's not your righteousness that you stand on. It's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ that's yours by grace as a gift. And your job is to rest in that. And that's an active discipline. Did you notice that? Do you notice how Luther talks to himself? It's one of the things I love about reading Luther. It's like he, he gets the kind of people that we are. He says, the one who sees Christ by faith says to himself, self, although I am a sinner and condemned by the law, I do not despair because Christ is my righteousness. He's saying, you're going to have to talk to yourself. You're going to need more preaching than just this sermon on Sunday morning. You need to become a good preacher and start talking to yourself. And reminding yourself that your righteousness is in Christ, that nothing can take it away, that it's yours by God's grace as a gift through faith, and that therefore you will not despair. Finally, we should rejoice in the righteousness of God by faith. Receive, rest, and rejoice. Friends, this is the heart of the gospel. Like this is the best news in the world. This is the essence of Christianity. When people ask you, like, what is the gospel? What does it mean to be a gospel-centered church? What does it mean to be a born-again person? What does it mean to be a person that your life is oriented around the gospel? This is what it means. It means that now a righteousness from God has been revealed. That the law and the prophets hinted at. And it comes by faith to all who believe. Friends, this is the great news on which we stand. It's the pillar and foundation on which the church is built and we shouldn't be half-hearted about it. Like we should celebrate and rejoice that this is true, that we do not stand before God based on who we are or who we aren't, based on what we have done or haven't done, but that the gracious gift of God is a righteousness we didn't work for, couldn't earn, couldn't ever have invented on our own that he's given to us because he's given us his son. That's that's the most amazing news in the world, and we should rejoice in it. You live in a world that despite its moving on from religious tradition, faces the strange persistence of guilt. And you have the one message that solves that problem. You have the good news that tells you and anyone else how they can finally and fully be set free from guilt because of what God has done in and through his son, Jesus. Friends, let's not keep that news to ourselves. Let's rejoice. Let's pray together. So our Father, we, 
we do rejoice. Give you praise for this good news. We thank you that you put forward your son, Jesus Christ, as a propitiation to be received by faith. Thank you, Jesus, that you came to redeem sinners who could not redeem themselves, that you came to set people free who were in captivity and had no hope of releasing themselves. And thanks that you have not just forgiven us, but you have given us the fullness, the wonder of your righteous standing. Thank you, Father, that when you look at us, you see the perfect righteousness and holiness of Jesus Christ as though we had never sinned or been a sinner, as the Heidelberg Catechism so beautifully says it. We give you praise. We give you honor. We rejoice and we ask that you give us the grace to rest more deeply in this good news. Father, for those here this morning who need to receive this gift of your grace, would you move in their souls to cause this to be the day that they receive and rest in this wonderful righteousness. And let us be a people who delight in it, rejoice in it, celebrate it, sing about it, and live in light of it. We pray for our good and your glory. Amen.